No, that's over. <clears throat> so we're in chapter 30, verses 25 to 31a. This is what God's word says. Now it came about when Rachel had given birth to Joseph that Jacob said to Laban, send me away so that I may go to my own place and to my own country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you and let me go. For you yourself know my service which I have rendered you. But Laban said to him, if it pleases you at all, stay with me. I had determined by divination that the Lord has blessed me on your account. He continued, name me your wages and I will give them. But Jacob said to him, you yourself know how I have served you and how your livestock have fared with me. For you had little before I came and it has increased to a multitude and the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. But now, when shall I provide for my own household also? So he said, what shall I give you? First thing we need to talk about is what started this battle of wits, this chess match, so to speak, between Jacob and Laban. Jacob has worked for Laban for the past 14 years in order to acquire his two wives, Rachel and Leah. Now he approaches Laban to gain his release from his service. What's changed? What's changed is that Jacob's preferred wife, Rachel, has now birthed a child of her own. And this was important for many reasons. One was for her protection. It was important for women in that culture to give their husband children. If Jacob would have left Mesopotamia before Rachel had her own children, there'd be no guarantee that at some point he couldn't have kicked her out. No, he couldn't have just left her by the side of the road. So for Rachel, staying close to her family was good for her. It protected her. And this reminds me again of the principle that God is in control of all things. Rachel was an integral part of the covenant, and God protected her. But now that Rachel has given birth to Joseph, Jacob can make his opening moves and approach Laban about going back home to Canaan. These moves by Jacob were calculated for his maximum benefit. But it really wasn't practical for Jacob to leave at this time. You know, it wasn't going to be easy to get Laban to agree, and Jacob knew this. Now, there are a couple reasons why it wasn't practical. The first was because he had no assets or resources to get back home to Canaan. He had to work for 14 years for his two wives, but he didn't really get paid for that work. Jacob came to Laban with nothing, and so the 14 years of labor was to pay the bride prices for Rachel and Leah. Now, of course, Jacob didn't want for anything because he was part of Laban's household, but in the end, he had nothing to show for it. How would he get back to Canaan without resources, without food, without camels, etc.? And then once he got back there, how would he buy the assets that he would need, like crops, flocks, etc.? And second, Jacob was indebted to Laban. In that culture, it would have been respectful to get his permission before he left his household. Third, Laban was technically the owner of his daughters and children. <clears throat> so Jacob couldn't just assume that he had the right to take them away. It would have been possible for Laban to just say, go ahead and leave, but you've got to leave your wife and children here. So realizing he can't leave, Jacob strategically approaches Laban in order to persuade him to make certain moves in his, in his favor. His tone is not subservient. 
He doesn't say please. In fact, he seemingly demands that Laban let him go back to where he came from. You know, Jacob's probably thinking about the promises of God made to him at Bethel. God promised to protect him, and he has. God promised him descendants, and now he has 12 children who will have children, and they will have children, and so on and so on. God promised to give him land as his inheritance, and now Jacob wants to return to Canaan to claim that inheritance. He appeals to the fact that he has faithfully served Laban. He mentions this service three times in verse 26, highlighting that fact. And then he, it's like he's saying, Laban, you know what I've done for you, and now you need to release me. These were Jacob's first moves in this chess match, in this battle of wits. And now Laban responds with his moves. Now notice he doesn't respond to Jacob's demand. Instead, he acts like he's the humble servant, and Jacob is the master. He politely asks that Jacob stay. You know, it's kind of like, you know, that he's been treating, he's been treating Jacob fairly all these years. But Laban also appeals to Jacob in a spiritual sense. And even though his words don't show that he has embraced Jacob's God, most commentators don't agree with the word that is translated divination. Because divination is defined as the attempt to discover hidden knowledge through incantation or other supernatural means. You know, it was normally used if a situation was not going well and you wanted to find out why. If you remember Rebecca, she inquired of the Lord about the war raging in her womb during pregnancy. And then the second thing is divination was used to see into the future. But Laban's not going through bad times. In fact, his flocks are growing. And he's doing well. And he's also talking about the past, not the future. So more accurately translated, Laban's saying that he's learned by experience that the Lord has blessed him because of Jacob. But however Laban has discerned the Lord's blessing upon him, it is clear that he consulted something other than God, which led him down to that conclusion. So what is the writer of Genesis trying to tell us here? The author is contrasting the spiritual conditions of Jacob and Laban. Laban was not interested in Jacob's God, only the blessings that he could receive because of him. Now he'd seen the blessing of God upon Abraham and his family. And he wanted to get the most out of them as he could. We also see the fulfillment of God's promise in Genesis 12, 3 that Sue read. You know, all the families of the earth will be blessed through Abraham and his descendants. And there's a principle here that we've seen before again. God keeps his promises. We can trust that it, we can trust in that. We can believe that he will always keep his promises to us, just as he did the patriarchs. We also see our big idea in that Laban has not been blessed on his own account, but on Jacob's. God has blessed Laban in order to fulfill his own divine purposes. <clears throat> so then we see Laban ask Jacob to name his wages. And, you know, we've seen this before. You know, we're reminded of Jacob's negotiations with Laban to take Rachel as his wife back in Genesis 29, 18. But this is a cunning reply on Laban's part. Because he didn't owe Jacob, he did, he did not owe Jacob anything at all. And it implies that in order to leave, Jacob would need to compensate Laban. You know, it's interesting, or it's important, to have an opening de defense in, in the early part of a chess match. And next, Jacob continues to set up his defenses. He again reminds Laban of all his service to him. 
he reiterates his service saying that Laban's flocks have done well and Laban's been a witness to it. So he can't deny it. Now Jacob may be exaggerating a little when he says that before he arrived on the scene, Laban had little and now his flocks have increased to a multitude. But he agrees with Laban that the Lord has blessed him wherever Jacob has turned. You know, it didn't matter what pastures or wells that Jacob led Laban's flocks to. They've increased and thrived because of the Lord's blessing. And now after providing for Laban's family, Jacob wants to provide for his own. This would have been a practical and logical request. Now one that Laban shouldn't turn down because Jacob's family was Laban's family. But Laban was not just going to turn him loose, family or no family, because Jacob was an asset to him. This really brings out the character of Laban. So Laban's last opening move was to inquire, what shall he give Jacob? You know, he goes from asking Jacob what his wages are to saying, well, what can I give you? Jacob's already asked him to give him his wives, his children, and his freedom. And Laban has re- ignored that request, and he's asked what wages he could pay him. Now he asks what he can give Jacob. As the opening part of this chess match comes to a close, and the middle game starts, it really gets interesting as both parties have set up a defense for what will happen next. <clears throat> the second point is the middle game called the Bishop's Sacrifice, found in verses 31b to 36. Follow along as I read those, those verses. This is what God's word says. <clears throat> and Jacob said, you shall not give me anything. If you will do this one thing for me, I will again pasture and keep your flock. Let me pass through your entire flock today, removing from there every speckled or spotted sheep and every black sheep among the lambs and the spotted or speckled among the goats, and those shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later when you come concerning my wages. Everyone that is not speckled or spotted among the goats or black among the lambs if found with me will be considered stolen. Good. Laban said, good. Let it be according to your word. So he removed on that day the striped or spotted male goats and all the speckled or spotted female goats, everyone with white on it, and all the black ones among the sheep, and put them in the care of his sons. And he put a distance of three days' journey between himself and Jacob, And Jacob fed the rest of Laban's flocks. So now Jacob makes his next moves. He doesn't want to be beholden to Laban. He doesn't want anything from him, but he will stay and continue to pasture his flocks if Laban will do one thing for him. Jacob asked to go through Laban's flock and remove every speckled or spotted sheep, every black lamb, and every speckled or spotted goat. This is what Jacob asked to be his wages for as long as he stayed in Laban's employ. Now, there's two reasons on the surface that Jacob won these particular lambs and goats. First, the majority of the Mediterranean flocks consisted of just white sheep and black goats. The abnormally colored sheep and goats were in the minority. So Jacob probably felt that by choosing these abnormally colored animals, that Laban would be more agreeable. Second, all Laban would have to do is look at Jacob's flock to see that he hasn't taken anything that wasn't his. Jacob's honesty would be at stake here. 
So Laban readily agrees, probably because this move by Jacob on the surface is not really a good one. Laban's getting the better end of the deal here. The normal shepherd's wages of those days would have been between 10 and 20% of the newborn sheep and goats. So with this arrangement, Jacob's wages would probably amount to less than 10% of his flock. But to Jacob, starting with nothing, even having 10% would be a good beginning to his own flock. <coughs> Gangle and Bramer in their commentary quote Mo Morris saying this, the arrangement clearly was highly favorable to Laban and of very doubtful value to Jacob. It was an act of pure faith on Jacob's part. He had put himself entirely at God's mercy. It would be up to the Lord to indicate by a very unlikely set of circumstances whether Jacob would prosper personally or not. That was Jacob's middle game. His plan was to make a sacrifice by offering to take less wages, trusting God to give him what he needed from Laban to improve his situation. You know, but Laban counters with moves of his own that seemed to be really not fair. He really seemed to be deceptive. Laban, probably not trusting Jacob to be fair, preemptively goes through his own flock and removes all the abnormally colored sheep and goats. But honestly, there's really no deception on Laban's part here for two reasons. First, Jacob doesn't complain about it. So it must not have mattered who removed the, the animals from Laban's flock. The second, remember that the shepherd's wages were usually from the newborn sheep and goats. The initial flock was still considered to be the owner's property. But by separating the abnormal sheep and goats from his flock before Jacob can pass through, that left only solid colored sheep and goats. By doing this, Laban has significantly lowered the percentages of his flock that will produce Jacob's wages. I mean, it was really clever, but not against the rules. He was, again, he's playing this chess match, this battle of wits between the two. So Laban also took those separated animals and put them in the care of his sons, putting a three days journey between them and his flocks that Jacob's would be tending. And this would guarantee that none of those animals would stray and come back to Laban's flock, which would make it easier for Jacob to produce abnormal offspring. Laban was gonna get any advantage that he could. And once these moves were made, our scripture says that Jacob fed the rest of Laban's flocks. You know, he started to do what he promised. He took care of them. At this point in the game, it may seem that Laban has the upper hand as we continue to the end game. And that's the third point in, our, in the message this morning called the Rook Strategy, found in verses 37 to 43. Again, follow along as I read. This is what God's word says. Then Jacob took fresh rods of poplar, almond, and plane trees, and peeled white stripes in them, exposing the white that was in the rods. He set the rods which he had peeled in front of the flocks in the drinking troughs, that is, in the watering channels, where the flocks came to drink. And they mated when they came to drink. So the flocks mated by the rods, and the flocks delivered striped, speckled, and spotted offspring. Then Jacob separated the lambs and made the flocks face toward the striped and all the black of the, in the flock of Laban. 
and he put his own herds apart, but did not put them with Laban's flock. Moreover, whenever the stronger the flock were mating, Jacob would place the rods in the side of the flock in the drinking trough so that they would mate by the rods. But when the flock was sickly, he did not put them in. So the sickly were Laban's, and the stronger were Jacob's. So the man became exceedingly prosperous, had large flocks, female and male servants, camels and donkeys. So as I said before, just, just a second ago, it seems that Laban has the upper hand in this game. But as in any chess match, usually one opponent or the other makes a fatal mistake. We see here that Laban's gotten overconfident. He's probably ignored Jacob, thinking there's no way that he could produce a very big flock with what he has to work with. Plus, he's confident that as long as Jacob is in charge of his flocks, he will prosper just as he did before. He's probably feeling pretty good about his odds. And Jacob's next move might seem weird to us today, as he took rods or tree limbs from poplar, almond, and plane trees and peeled them so they seemed striped. Commentators aren't sure why he picked these particular trees. It may have been because of the play on words for poplar and Laban. In Hebrew, poplar sounds similar to the word white, and Laban's name means white. So Jacob put these striped rods in the watering troughs so that when the flocks came to drink during mating season, they would see them. This caused the offspring to be striped, speckled, and spotted. And then he separated the lambs and made them face toward the striped and all the black in Laban's flock during mating season. You know, in that time and culture, it was believed that these acts could influence the kind of offspring they would have. <clears throat> Briscoe says it was a common belief in that culture that when animals were breeding, the embryo was affected by any strange sight which might confront the, the mother during pregnancy. The use of the striped rods were the equivalent to using mandrakes to get pregnant that Pastor Stewart showed us a couple weeks ago. There were folk traditions that didn't have any power to accomplish what the people thought it would. But Jacob, at some level, either believed the folk traditions or was doing as he was directed, or both. Of course, the real reason for spotted and speckled offspring was due to the recessive genes inside the white sheep and the black goats. And of course, the power of God to quickly affect these results. Now, Jacob had been building up his flocks, and, and then now he separates his herd from Laban's herd. And then he starts to employ selective breeding. He knew which sheep and goats were the strongest, and when they were mating, he would put the rods in their sight and the drinking troughs. But when the sickly and weaker animals would be mating, he would not put the rods in their sight. The result was the strongest animals would mate with the other strong animals, and their offspring would be striped and speckled and become part of Jacob's flock. And the weaker animals would mate with other weak animals, their offspring remaining solid and become a part of Laban's flock. <clears throat> now, I didn't make the final verse of our scripture this morning its own point, but if I did, I would have called it checkmate. Jacob's strategy was to build up his flock so that when he was able to go home, he would have the assets and resources to make the journey. And then he'd be able to prosper once he arrived there. Verse 43 tells us that the man, talking about Jacob, became exceedingly prosperous. 
It had large flocks, female and male servants, camels and donkeys. Exceedingly prosperous reminds us of God's promises to Jacob at Bethel, that he would expand and spread out, which included descendants, possessions, and later the promised land. His possessions now include large flocks, female and male servants, and camels and donkeys. His prosperity can be seen in a couple of ways. One, camels were considered rare and costly in that day. Two, this list reminds us of what Abraham acquired in Egypt from Pharaoh. God had prospered Abraham in Egypt. Now he's prospered Jacob as he was sent away from his home. Jacob is more ready to return to Canaan than he was when he approached Laban to ask for his release. God had promised the patriarch's possessions and prosperity, and he fulfilled that promise to Jacob using Laban's own sheep and goats. Checkmate. And thinking about next steps, I wanted us to think about the blessings of God in our lives. First, the big eye states that God's blessings are not for our benefit, but to be used to fulfill his purposes. Second, having received the blessings of God in the past, we can and should anticipate his continued blessing in our lives in the future. That brings us to the first next step on the back of your communication card, which is this. To anticipate God's blessings in my life and be ready to use them to fulfill his purpose to pursue, grow, and multiply disciples. Third, we should not only anticipate his blessings, but give him, give him the glory the honor, praise, and thanksgiving for the blessings we receive from him. The question becomes this. <clears throat> Do we take the credit ourselves for the blessing that comes our way? Do we forget to thank God when we receive his blessings? Or do we gratefully give him the glory for what he has done for us? And that brings us to the last next step, which is, to give God the glory, honor, praise, and thanksgiving for the blessings I receive from him. <clears throat> As the praise team comes forward to lead us in a final song, let's bow our heads in a closing prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the blessings that you have given us and given to our church. Help us to realize that those blessings are not for us to keep to ourselves, but to be used to fulfill your purposes in the world. Help us to anticipate your blessings in our lives and in our church and remember to give you the glory, the honor, the praise, and the thanksgiving as we receive them. Take us from this place this morning willing to speak of your blessings and your glory to those we come in contact this week. In Jesus' name, amen.